survey last week. Uh, this one will be more lighthearted, but I wanted to open with a survey this week. I want to know who here has moved the most times. So if you have moved living places more than once, would you raise your hand? More than twice. Three times. Four times. Five times. More than ten times. Eleven. Fifteen. Fifteen? How many times? Okay, somewhere over 15 times. We have a Are we disputing? Well, she's 15 and I'm 15. Oh, they're twins. read it, you'd notice it. You could notice it right away, just in the first book of the Bible. Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden. They moved. Well, they moved because they were kicked out. <laughs> Their son, Cain, killed his brother, Abel, and he became a wanderer. You remember Ab Abraham, who was originally called Abram. God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And he had to travel hundreds of miles to get to the promised land, the land of Canaan. Abram and Isaac and his sons, his grandsons, all of them moved about this land, the land of Canaan until they finally moved to Egypt. And then in Egypt, they're there for 400 years. There's the Exodus. They move again, and then they're in the wilderness for 40 years, moving around all over. They finally get settled into the land. They stay there for a while, but their rulers and their leaders still move around in the land, and then they finally move, they get booted out of the land again. They move. They get taken captive to Babylon and to Assyria. And then once they're there, eventually God brings them back and they move again back to the land. That's where we are today. That's where the books of Ezra and Nehemiah come in. God's people moving back to the promised land, the land of Israel or Canaan, uh, after they were held in captivity. Now God's people, even after this time, won't stop moving. You may recall Jesus saying that when he was on earth, he had no place to rest his head, constantly on the move. You may recall Jesus, as he ascended to heaven, commissioned his followers to move beyond Jerusalem into all the nations of the earth. God's people are people who are on the move. Why all this talk about moving? Why Ezra and Nehemiah? Well, I talk about moving because as many of you know, as we've already said this morning, we are in the works of moving where we gather as a church. In the book of Ezra and Nehemiah after it, which were originally one combined book, shows God at work in the movement of his people. These books contain challenges and the mix of emotions that come with moving. They show us that as God works for his people, God also works in his people. The book of Ezra teaches us about how to think about place, how to keep our eye on the larger movement of God's plan. Ezra keeps us anticipating for what's to come. 
It teaches us that in change, we hold on to the one who does not change. Today we're going to look at Ezra chapters 1 and 2. But before we dive into those chapters, uh, to understand this book of Ezra, you have to understand what comes before it in the bigger story of the Bible. So we've talked about this some already, some of the movements of God's people. And we'll see that even as we read the opening chapters of Ezra, Ezra 1 and 2, Ezra assumes that his readers have some background knowledge of what has already happened. So for example, he, he assumes that they know this guy Cyrus became the king of the Persian Empire. He assumes that they know that the Israelites were taken captive by the Babylonian Empire, by this king called Nebuchadnezzar. He assumes that we know some things already. So what happened before Ezra? Why does it matter? What does it show us about God's plan? These are questions we should answer before we even look at the book. Now, Dr. Jim Hamilton offers the helpful image of the story of the Bible showing a theater. So God constructs a theater, and the earth is the stage God has built on which he will dramatize and display his glory. The earth is this stage. In one section of this stage, at the very beginning of the story, he planted a garden. He put real-life characters in it. And it's through these characters God intended to fill the rest of the stage with his glory. Now, instead of the characters doing that, the characters rebelled against God lost the privilege of living in that little section of the stage of the garden, and God banished them from the realm of life. But the story continued. That's just Genesis chapter 3. God chose a weak little nation, Israel, who was enslaved to the most powerful nation on earth, and they, he brought them out of slavery and into another little garden on the stage. God intended this little nation also to fill the stage with his glory. What God meant to do through them and the entire earth, he symbolized in the places of the tabernacle and the temple, places they built where God filled his glory. That's what he meant to do in the entire earth. But again, God's people failed. Just as God banished Adam and Eve, so God banished Israel from this little part of the stage that he gave to them. To show the meaning of what was happening, the little replica of the whole theater, the temple, was torn down. And the people were taken into captivity by the empire of Babylon. But as God threw them out, he also spoke through the prophets to promise that just as he had freed them from slavery to Egypt, so he would also save them again, a new exodus. He promised a return to the land and more. He promised a new covenant. He promised a new king, a new David to rule on his throne. Just as God filled the temple, so also God promised to fill them as individuals with his spirit. God promised them not just a new temple, God promised them an entire new theater, a new heaven, and a new earth. This is the backdrop of Ezra. Now, we can, as we go into Ezra itself, 
we can divide the book of Ezra into two major parts. Chapters 1 to 6 span about 80 years of time and concludes with the reconstruction of the temple led by a guy called Zerubbabel. Tough to say 10 times. <laughs> the second half, chapters 7 to 10, this is when Ezra really arrives on the scene, chapters 7 to 10 span really only one year. And they deal with not the reconstruction of the temple, but the renewal of God's people. And this is led by Ezra. The chapters we're in today, chapters 1 to 2, tell us about the exiles returning to the land and having their lives restored. In telling us this story, though, the emphasis lies on how this happened. More than the, than the decrees of kings, more than the work ethic and motivation of people, it's the Lord who made this happen. The Lord is the one who brought this about. So here we get to the main point or the main takeaway of Ezra 1 to 2. Behind the movements of kings, nations, and people is the sovereign hand of God working in judgment, salvation, and care. Behind the movements of kings, nations, and people is the sovereign hand of God working in judgment, salvation, and care. As we go through this story of the people returning to the land, laid out in chapters 1 to 2, we'll note three ways God worked in it and brought it about, made it happen. He did it through God's promises, through God's sovereignty, and through God's care. Those are the three blanks in your bulletin if you're filling it out. Promises, sovereignty, and care. We'll start with the promises. We're not going to read Ezra 1 to 2 uh, in one fell swoop. I will have mercy on you in that way. Um, but I did print it all so that you can reference it in your bulletins as we uh, remove the Bibles from the pews to keep the spread of germs down. Uh, so you have it all here. You even got the verse numbers. And we're just going to start with chapter 1, verse 1. Okay? Uh, that's doable. But this is a very significant verse for us. So chapter 1, verse 1 of Ezra. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put it in writing. So right away, we get the timing when this happens and the person involved for the Israelites' return to the land. Cyrus, king of Persia, in his first year. Investigative work, we'll ask some basic questions. Who is Cyrus? Who is this guy? Cyrus was the king of a strong but new empire called Persia, which is in the Middle East. Cyrus had humble beginnings, initially ruling over just a small state near the Persian Gulf. He defeated and then inherited the Median Empire, which arched over the Babylonian Empire to the north and to the east. In 539 BC, Cyrus defeated the Babylonian Empire. So Persia is a new empire. It's a very strong empire. It's on the rise. And this king will be instrumental in the Israelites going back to their land. So even before we get to the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy, as Ezra notes here, the reign of Cyrus himself represents a fulfillment of another prophecy from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 44, verse 28 says, Cyrus, 
He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Again, from Isaiah 45, verse 13, I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. God named this guy before he came to power. This is the Lord who knows the end from the beginning. So this shows us God promised to use King Cyrus to fulfill and bring about another one of his promises. And this is the promise from Jeremiah. So Ezra 1.1 says the proclamation of Cyrus in his first year of his reign, it says it came in accordance with the word of the Lord by the mouth of Je Jeremiah. So another basic investigative question. We asked who is Cyrus. Now, what is this word from Jeremiah? What was this promise? Well, before we dive into the actual answer, notice how Ezra describes the word, the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah. It's very careful. It's a very deliberate way to describe it. It reflects the truth about what we believe about the Bible. Right? Notice the, the source of Jeremiah's prophecy, of Jeremiah's word, the source is God. But these prophecies are spoken through Jeremiah. It reflects our understanding that the Bible is both divine, it comes from God, and it's human. It's written down by human authors. It has one ultimate source and author that is God, but God moved through various human authors to write down all that he wanted them to write down. He worked through their circumstances. He worked through their writing styles. He even worked through their research, like we see in the Gospel of Luke. So what was this promise from Jeremiah? As we said already, it's helpful to know some backstory and some background to understand this promise. Like we've said, the Babylonian Empire conquered Israel. At least that is the southern part of it called Judah. The Babylonians took their first captives in 605 BC. About 20 years later, in 586 BC, they destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. The prophet Jeremiah lives around and about this time. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 25, verse 12, in chapter 29, verse 10, he says that the captivity in Babylon for the Israelites would last 70 years. From the first captives Babylon took from Israel to the time Cyrus defeated Babylon and made this proclamation for them to return was just under 70 years. As one commentator puts it, God doesn't just make good on his word, he's better than his word. He runs to keep it. <clears throat> 70 years. I want, I want us to sit with that for a second. 70 years. For a moment, just try to put yourself in the Israelites' shoes. And maybe you don't have to try that hard. Maybe you know what it's like to be forced from your home. I can see in the news this week and recently uh, wildfires in California and Colorado being forced from your home, your home being destroyed. For them, for these people back then, this was 70 years away from their home. And this wasn't just any home. 
This was a home that God promised for them. God promised them this home. And now they have 70 years of being subjects of a foreign nation, of being strangers in a new land that opposed them. You think about it, 70 years. People could have been born, lived, and died all while they were in exile. How would you have felt if you were in Babylon, if you were from Israel in the 70 years? We don't have to wonder how they felt. We can listen to a psalm like Psalm 137. Hear this. It says, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required us of us songs. And our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of those songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Seventy years in a foreign nation, away from their home. This is how they felt. But if you were in their shoes, what would you do? Again, we, we don't have to wonder about that either. We read it earlier in the book of Daniel. Daniel, you know, the, the lion's den guy, he was one of the first captives taken to Babylon. And what did Daniel do when he was there? Well, in classic Daniel fashion, he was faithful to the Lord in the place where he found himself. But he also rooted himself in the word and prayed in response. So do you know what Daniel read when he was captive in Babylon? That's right. He read the book of Jeremiah, the same book that Ezra refers to here. Listen to Daniel 9, verses 2 to 3. It says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books of the numbers of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Friends, what should we do when times are tough? What should we do when we're moving and we don't like it? What should we do when we don't feel like we're at home, when everything is lost and nothing seems to matter? We should look at God's word. We should see his promises there and pray based on them. Daniel's prayer is a beautiful model of this. You know, this is not the presumption of the Naboth and Claimant's prosperity gospel, guys. This is trust, deep-seated trust, in the genuine promises of God for his new covenant people. So friends, we, we run the risk in when we wallow in self-pity and in despair to projecting our bad thoughts about God onto him. Thinking that God is some stingy miser who gets off on withholding things from us. That's the lie of the garden. Your father is good. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. In Christ, God is our Father. 
who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, that we might be forgiven and at peace with him. The point is, friends, our Father's promises can be trusted. He brought the Israelites back to the land out of captivity. Through Christ, God brought his people back to himself out of our captivity to sin. God can be trusted. You root yourself in his word, you cling to his promises, you pray, you go forward. These are promises that I have held on to and prayed in response to in recent days. These are ones that, that have touched me, especially with this season in our church. Matthew 28, 20. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Philippians 1, verse 6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. John 10, 27 to 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. In all the change, take heart. Trust and pray, knowing that God keeps his promises. He did so here in the return of the Israelites to their land. So how did the Israelites return to the land after being held captive to Babylon? Of course we can see human reasons for this, but behind the plots and the actions of people was God fulfilling his promises and exercising his sovereignty. That is God's sovereignty, meaning his rule and his control over all things, everything. We see God's hand of sovereignty at work in Cyrus. You return to verse 1 and see that it is the Lord who stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus to make this proclamation. It's the Lord who did this. Now, we can nuance this and qualify this to an extent. We should say that this proclamation that Cyrus gave for the Israelites to return, to rebuild their temple, it was part and parcel of his policy toward the nations that he conquered. You know, other empires like Babylon before Persia, they treated the gods of the people they conquered like trophies. We see how Babylon did that with Israel. They, they got the vessels from Israel's temple and they stuck them in their, the temple of their own gods, treated them like trophies. Cyrus was different. Cyrus respected the gods of the people that he conquered. He rebuilt their temples. He reinstituted their worship. And it was really because he wanted to get all of the good mojo that he could. Maybe if he showed homage to the other gods, then they would give him success, and they wouldn't bother him. Cyrus is a crafty politician. Like politicians now, you buddy up to certain groups, like evangelicals, and hope to get support from them. So listen to his proclamation in verses 2 to 4, of Ezra 1, verses 2 to 4. 
Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Just a couple of housekeeping things here. Do you see how Cyrus speaks about God in this decree? There's respect for him, yes. We want to acknowledge the good done through Cyrus. But Cyrus does not have an intimate personal relationship with the one true God. At least it doesn't appear so here. This title, God of Heaven, was the name the Jewish people can commonly use for God. He does not call God my God. Notice he says, may his God be with him. He says, this is the God who is in Jerusalem, which is true. But this God is not just another tribal deity. This is the God of all the earth. So yeah, Cyrus has some respect. Yeah, Cyrus helped facilitate all of this. But the Israelites owed their newfound freedom not to the self-interested emperor. They ultimately owed it to the God of the universe, the one true God, Yahweh. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, A king's heart is like streams of water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. Friends, the word that rules over the earth is not the proclamation and decrees of kings, presidents, and parliaments. It is the word of the high king of heaven who accomplishes all of his purposes. The Israelites should have remembered that God did this for them before, stirring the heart of the king who let them go and even funded their exit. This was like a second exodus. So we see God's sovereign hand at work in Cyrus, we see God's sovereign hand at work in the people of Israel themselves, in his own people. Look at verse 5. It says, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So God didn't just stir up Cyrus's heart. He also stirred up his people's hearts. We asked, what would have happened if God didn't do this? If God didn't do this for his people, what would have happened? Well, perhaps they would, have, would not have wanted to leave Babylon. Perhaps they would have just wanted to stay put. Or you might say, well, Steve, didn't we just read Psalm 137 where they're weeping in Babylon? Why wouldn't they want to go back home? Well, I'll say, I'll twist Darth Vader's words. <laughs> I find your lack of faith in how much we can lack faith disturbing. You see, previously in Israel's history, for example, many examples, they wandered in the wilderness outside the land of Canaan, the promised land. And God promised to give them this land. That's why it's called the promised land. But before they went in, God told them to send 13 guys in, scope it out. Give a report. Tell us what it's like. Eleven of the spies come back and they said, this land is great and all, but there are these giant people there. 
NFL lineman style who could stop us like a juicy bug. So let's not go in. I know God promised it and all that. I know like the Red Sea and all that, but eh, I think we're okay in the wilderness. If God did not stir up his people's hearts to return back home, they may have just looked to themselves, not to the Lord, and decided, it's just too hard. It's not worth it. It's easier just to stay here. You think if God didn't do this, even if the people desired to go up out of this land without God in them, without God behind them, they would have went in vain, would have labored in vain. People like Moses knew this. We remember after the Israelites set up the golden calf at Mount Sinai and worshipped it, and God forgave, God restores, and, and Moses told God, he said, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Friends, are you worried? What's going to happen to my country? What's going to happen to my kids? What kind of world will they live in? This is really hard what I'm going through. How is this going to work? What's going to happen to my church? We're not saying that we just throw up our hands and dismiss our responsibility to take action. But what about when there's really just nothing more we can do? Well, like our first point, we say we pray. But then we ask another question. What gives us confidence that everything won't unravel? That it really will be okay? What gives us that confidence when we pray? Well, I submit to you that it's this point here that we consider that God is sovereign, that he is in control, that the hearts of man are like streams of water in his hand, that there is nothing too challenging for him, that there is nothing that catches him by surprise, that this is the one who will accomplish his purposes, who will do that, who will get glory, who will bring about good? So ways to apply this. Friends, would you pray for people with the confidence that God is sovereign? Pray for people with the confidence that God is sovereign. Listen, regardless of who wins the presidential election, will you pray? God, God, the hearts of kings are like streams of water in God's hands. Regardless of who wins, will you pray that God moves in their hearts so that doors would remain open for the gospel, so that this individual would govern with justice, humility, and integrity? Do you have family and friends who don't know Jesus, who don't follow him, who don't trust him, who you want to see come to know Christ? Would you pray with the confidence that God is sovereign? Yes, uh, be faithful. Make the word of Christ known to them, love them well. Would you pray that God is the one who stirs hearts as he does here, as he did there in Ezra? Another way to apply this is that God is sovereign. He is in control. He brings about all of his purposes. We should know that no matter what happens, even in the worst of situations, this is still true. Basic truth, but it's so hard to believe. God is sovereign, and God is at work. Everything that happens comes through the hands of God Almighty. When Babylon defeated Israel, 
We can read about this in uh, Daniel chapter 1, and we see it in Ezra 1. When Babylon defeated Israel, they thought they defeated God. They thought that they had defeated Israel's God. That's why they took all the, uh, the vessels from the temple. But when we read Daniel 1, it says that they didn't defeat God. God gave Israel over to Babylon. And here, how the tables are turned, here's proof of it. Now, the Babylonians themselves are defeated. And the vessels are being taken back. So, friends, the Israelites are taking back the vessels that Babylon took. And no matter what happens, we say from here, God is not defeated. He is sovereign. This is the one, as verse 11 in Ezra 1 tells us, who brought up the exiles from Babylon to Jerusalem. But there's another example. Knowing that whatever happens, God is not defeated. The rulers of the day, the rulers of this present darkness, thought it a victory when they crucified the Son of God on a Roman cross. And little did they know that their so-called victory was actually their defeat. And little did they know that Jesus' defeat was actually his victory. Hebrews 2, verse 14 says that by death, Jesus crushed the one who has the power of death. This tells us that in the worst event in human history, the murder of the Son of God himself, in that worst event, God was at work in his sovereignty to bring about the greatest good in all of history. The events at the beginning of Ezra happened in accordance with God's promises and because of God's sovereignty, and they show us God's care. This is our last section here. If you ever tried to read through the Bible cover to cover, then you know that the Bible not only likes movements of people, it likes lists of people as well. This is another big, long list. And the question is, what do we do with these things? And if you're me, it gives you permission just to read quickly and stumble over old Jewish names. So chapter 2 tells us about the people who resettled in the land. Now what we might see is just a list of names actually displays God's thoughtful and loving care. You see, how much simpler would it have been for Ezra to say, hey, there are thousands of people who came back. Paper saved, trees saved, less ink spilled, and we go on. So we might think that these are wasted words, but there are no wasted words in Scripture. Taking that simple route of a just mass summary dehumanizes people. God saved a group, yes, but there were real people in this group. Real people who had families, who had hometowns. God's care is not sloppy and haphazard. It is purposeful. Jesus himself knows his sheep by name. Not just generally, by name. This heart of God is reflected here as well. His care. Listing names and families further shows God's care to keep identities. You see, after two generations captive, we talk about those 70 years away in another country, two generations captive to a nation that conquered them and opposed them, God preserved his people so that who they were did not change. So as Christians living as strangers and sojourners in a world that opposes us and opposes our Lord, 
we are confident that God will care for us to preserve us and that he will bring us home. Looking at this list itself, uh, beginning in chapter 2, this list of exiles who return is organized by different groups. So it begins with the leaders of the company. Uh, two most prominent were Zerubbabel, who is the grandson of King Jehoiachin, uh, the king of Judah, and another prominent guy, uh, Yeshua, or Jeshua. Uh, this is the high priest. The list continues in verses 2 to 35. It either places Israelites within their known family or within their known hometown. Verses 36 to 39, we see the priests. Priests were originally divided into 24 families. They would rotate in their duties. We see that in the beginning of Luke. Uh, but here, not only four families make the return. Verses 40 to 42 show us the rest of the Levites. This was one tribe of Israel out of the 12. These were those who directly assisted the priests. Those who had other roles come after the Levites in verses 43 to 54, roles such as the temple servants. We see the descendants of Solomon's servants in verses 55 to 57. And after verse 57, we see these groups who cannot prove their identity. Do you notice that? Starting in verse 58. You know, some couldn't prove that they belonged to Israel. Others couldn't prove that they were descendants of priests. And though it seems harsh, you know, God's people kept them and they wanted to check up and make sure they had proof. But this is actually an instance of God's care. This is God's care for their holiness. This is God's care for the people who made these claims for their good. So for instance, the people who claimed to be priests started to serve as priests but weren't really priests. They could be struck dead by God's holiness when they attempted to draw near to his presence. So this was a serious matter. The Israelites took this so seriously, it says that they consulted the Lord through Urim and Thummim. These were little stones kept in the high priest's breastpiece through which God would guide decisions. These sons of Hathos, you see here, it's a, a small detail, but these guys who couldn't prove their identity present us as a snapshot of our need, of what we need ourselves. In themselves, these sons of Hakos, these guys who couldn't prove who they were, they needed outside help, someone to do what they couldn't do themselves. So we look at us. Our sin has disqualified us before God. We need somebody else to step in in our place. This is where Jesus comes. Jesus steps up and stands in in our place doing what we can't. He is called our advocate before the Father. He makes the case, his own case, based on his own perfect life and his death for our sin. Trusting in Jesus, we are qualified to share the inheritance of the sons of light. We are forgiven, and now we have access to God just like a priest. So there you have it. Verse 64 tells us that this group of exiles who returned totaled up to 42,360. Do you see that number there? So a quick note on that number. I know this is just seems like a dry statistic. You might run into those in the, uh, who point out the discrepancies, the differences in the between the numbers in the Bible. 
This is one example. So this same number appears in the book of Nehemiah. But when you total up the number presented in the list of everything that comes before verse 64, you don't get that 42,000 number. You get closer to 30,000. How do we explain this? How do we explain this discrepancy, this difference? Well, first, we should say that this has no major effect on the actual message of the text. These are minor details. Second, these discrepancies are likely due to the errors of those who copied down this book. So from the original copy of Ezra, known as the autograph, thousands of copies were made after. These copies help us generate what was there originally, but copying the original was difficult, especially with numerical lists. So this reflects our belief that Scripture is inerrant without error in its original autographs, not its copies. Final takeaway from just that little aside. Tossing out the Bible because of errors of copiers, like with numbers, as one author puts it, tossing out the Bible would be as silly as receiving a written message from someone you trust, warning you about a nuclear attack and rejecting the message because the word nuclear is misspelled. Would you risk getting nuked because of a spelling error? Back to this number. Any way you slice it, this 42,000 number in verse 64, it's, it's not that impressive. This is less than the population of Parma. But God likes to display his glory through weakness. It's through this small group of people that the Messiah would come. More than that, though, despite this humble number, the people who returned recognized how much God had done for them. They recognized that God had kept his promise, that God was in control, that God takes care of his people. They were back home. I love that detail in chapter 2, verse 1. Each person went back to his own hometown. I love that detail. They had all they needed. All they needed to restart their lives, to restart their worship of God in the land. All the tools, all the materials, all the groups of people. God provided everything. He kept the promise. He moved the heart of the king. He moved their hearts to return. He provided all the materials. He brought back all the right people. And how did they respond? Chapter 2, verse 68. They made free will offerings. God gave them everything. Now they seek to give their lives back in service to God. How much truer should this be for us Christians? In Christ. God has provided everything we need, every spiritual blessing. Our salvation, our lives do not come from us, they come from God. And now, as Romans 12 calls us to do, we present our lives as living sacrifices. This is our spiritual worship. We recognize the one who gave it all, and we want to give it back. I think his prayer in the value of vision is a fitting close. In light of all that God had done for his people, done everything, this is how they respond. This, this is a good prayer. You have loved me everlastingly, unchangeably. 
May I love you as I am loved. You have given yourself for me. May I give myself to you. You have died for me. May I live to you. Lord Jesus, you paid it all. Sin had left a crimson stain, you washed it white as snow. And now, all to you we owe. Were the whole realm of nature ours, that would be a present far too small. We have Jesus, everything we need. Thank you, Lord, that you make good on your promises, that in Jesus, all your promises are yes and amen. We are recipients the one we have waited for a long time. Jesus made an end to all of our sin. And in him, we have everything. Help us to live in trust. Help us to live in confidence. And Lord, please continue to care for us, your people. Make good in your promises. In Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. Amen.